everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and you should start making your plans to come ride on our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, our guest today is Lance Canfield of Canfield Bikes. Canfield recently announced that they are coming out with two new bikes, so we thought it would be a good time to talk to Lance about the current Canfield lineup, to talk with him about the origins of Canfield, Lance's own racing career, and competing in the very first Rampage competitions. We also get Lance's perspective on the mountain bike industry today, and we end by asking Lance, what his current big idea is. Today's episode is presented by Survivor and their new Survivor Endurance phone case for the new iPhone 12. Now, I'm certain that the vast majority of you listening to this podcast ride with these pocket supercomputer phones that we all carry around nowadays. And especially if you've recently pulled the trigger on a new iPhone 12, you should be protecting that damn thing. Now, personally, I always have my phone on me when I'm riding or skiing, since we use them to shoot a lot of bike and ski photos and videos. And I've been using the Survivor Endurance case for a while now, and I really like that it is a lightweight and pretty slim case that still offers solid protection for those inevitable crashes or phone drops that we all eventually have. And you can see the case and read more about my own experience using it on the Blister website. And we'll include links to my write-up and to the Survivor Endurance product page at verizon.com. So check it out and go protect that shiny new phone of yours. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Lance Canfield. Well, Lance... How are you today and where are you today? I'm great, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. I'm in Fruta, Colorado at the headquarters, Canfield headquarters. Yeah, just hanging out in the office and we have like all of our facilities here, our home, our garage, our warehousing, and all of our employees are out here. They've been instructed to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're you're on like the Canfield compound. That's right. You guys literally have like the Canfield compound. Yeah. Yeah. We bought this place. Um, it's right near downtown Fruta, like four or five blocks away from downtown. And it's a commercial residential property that has our house and our garage and our warehousing and our office space and everything right here. And so how long have you guys been in Fruta now? Beginning of January. So this year, yep, just this, this 2020. Pretty good. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation to just talk a bit about like the background of Canfield and what you guys have going on at the moment. And, you know, we've got a couple new bike releases. And so we've got a lot of uh, material in front of us here, I think. So I think I want to start just by talking or asking you about the founding of Canfield. Let's let's kind of start there. So I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer. And prior to that, I had a degree in auto body repair and had my own hot rod shop. And so I had a lot of people in my world that had a lot of good manufacturing experience and a lot of people that I could draw on. I was racing downhill bikes at the time and decided that the bikes in the mid nineties were really not up to the task of downhill racing. They were pretty scary, really. They, everybody's bikes were broken and, you know, travel was minimal if the bike was light and there were tanks if they weren't. And so I felt like I could make a, a better bike, you know, give myself an advantage on the racetrack. So I designed up a bike and it was pretty radical. It was 12 inch travel front and rear, the big fat fatty fat. One of the best names ever. Yes. Yeah. It was named after our, our poodle at the time. 
and he was just a, a mean little old poodle. Was, we called him the big fat fatty fat. I designed up this bike and my brother was more of a rock climbing and he was going to college, didn't really have a focus on where he wanted to be, but he was super fired up on this bike that I was like, I'm going to build this bike and race it. And he was like, well, let's build two and let's do this. So we ended up building two hand cut all of the own, our own tubes and worked with a local frame custom frame maker to basically kind of help walk us through it all in the very beginning. And, uh, we built these two bikes and there was really no intent to start a business. And we showed up on the race scene and we started doing really well with it. Like I won a whole bunch of overalls on that bike and people took notice and we had friends coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, if you're going to build some of those, I'll buy one. So we had like, I don't know, 10 people like ready to buy. And I was like, uh, do you want to do this, Chris? And, you know, so we built 20 sets of parts and started custom building these bikes for all of our friends. That's kind of where it all started. And so this is what year? 1999. 1999. Honestly, the whole time you were talking, all I could think of is that an equally good name for the big fat fatty fat would be the, if you'd called it the mean poodle. <laughs> the mean poodle. Yeah. I mean, think about it. You can have that one for free if if uh, you want to use that down the line. <laughs> I, I would buy a mean poodle for sure. So just, you know. We had, we had people on the side of the racetrack, like just yelling that as we would ride by. Big fat, fatty fat. Just it was just made me laugh every single time we rode by somebody screaming that just hilarious. You're like, shut up. I'm trying to concentrate right now. Oh, I was usually so focused racing that it didn't, it didn't bother me when people were yelling it. It just fired me up more. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I always really enjoy these kind of founder stories and I think some people, part of the story is in, you know, if they're a bike manufacturer, it's like, well, we were passionate about bikes and we thought, there might be a business idea here or something, but like that wasn't quite your case. You just were like, we wanted to have something different to race on. And then people saw it and were like, can I get myself one of those? And that's kind of how you got started. We really fell into it. We, we had no intention of starting a business when we were building those first two bikes. And after building, I don't know, we, we built maybe 17 or 18 of those 20 bikes and then started building some, some different bikes with those parts. It really took a lot of our time, just the actual fabrication of it all. And it, it was more of a hobby than it was a business. It didn't, wasn't paying bills. Like we were both working our, you know, day jobs and then working into the night to cut tubes for some, some other guy that just needs his bike in a month. And it's just like, Oh geez, we got to hustle on this one. You know, so we did a lot of that kind of stuff and it really wasn't making sense as far as a business goes. It took us about five years to get to the point where it was like, okay, well, we either need to quit doing this or we need to figure out how to make this really run as a real business. And that's when we turned to, you know, outsourcing our production. And then that freed up me to be able to do more design and really push our product line along. So that, that was the big turning point in our business was five years in. Yeah. So you kind of opened by talking about your own DH riding going back a bit earlier than that. Did you kind of start in the BMX scene? Were you one of those kids? Yeah. Yeah. A little kid. I, I, I was always on my bike. Like I had a BMX bike and it was, a uh, from coast to coast, the coast King, it was like a 40 pound, just the crummiest BMX bike you can imagine, right? <laughs> yes. And we lived in kind of a nicer neighborhood and all the other kids in the neighborhood had, you know, Schwinn Stingrays and, you know, just like a lot nicer bikes, you know, red lines and predators and cool stuff, you know, and I was always super jealous of their bikes, but I had this crummy old bike, but I guarantee my bike always ran better than theirs just because I was so like anal about making sure that it was just dialed. I would stay up all night, like sneak my bed, my bike into my bedroom at night. And then I would just stay up all night and tear the whole thing apart and regrease the headset, make sure the bottom bracket was perfect and just go through the whole thing 
just to make sure that it was just right. I like this. And then you'd get to the to the race and be like, I'm going to beat those kids with those nice shiny bikes. You know, it's funny because uh, there was one kid in my neighborhood that went to the races all the time and I never went to the races. They they were held a little bit late at night and they were on school nights and um, you had to pay to get in. And like my parents weren't really into doing any of that kind of stuff. They were just like, that's that's just, you know, that's not in line with you know, spending money in the right places to give our kid a future. Right. It's just like, you're just playing around on your bike. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it it, it was not like that at all. I loved it. It was my passion just ever since I was a little, little kid. So I remember going to a race with that kid and, and, uh, just seeing the scene and going and coming home and mom, I really want to go to the races. And I I never did, never got to race BMX as a kid. We had a, a vacant lot in the neighborhood and we would just spend our afternoons out there digging and hitting jumps and playing with all the neighborhood kids. So when was your first race? In about 94. Four. Yep. I was, I, I didn't race BMX ever. And when I turned 16, I, my dad gave me this old truck, old Dodge pickup truck. And one of the first things I did was I run down to the to the motorcycle shop and I bought, bought a motorcycle. And so I totally transitioned into, you know, hot rods and motorcycles for a couple of years. It was basically from when I was 16 until I was 18. And then by those two years, I completely destroyed that motorcycle and it was time to, you know, do something about it. And so I ended up selling it and I only had enough to get a mountain bike. It was like, well, I'll just get, I, I like riding bikes. So I'll just get back into this thing. It's like, it's not a, it's not a BMX bike anymore. All of a sudden there's mountain bikes. And that was kind of a new thing, even, you know, as weird as that sounds. And so, yeah, I bought myself a hardtail mountain bike and, and I just started riding that, um, not really on trails too much, just going to the dirt jumps and hitting jumps and going up to the University of Utah and doing stair stair gaps and stair sets and big lawn rollers and doing like urban jumping. That's I just go out and jump my bike. So I was I was working through about a a wheel per week. I would buy like a, a grundle of hoops uh-huh. and just relace. I was always relacing wheels and just sending it just twenty stair sets, like gapping twenty stair sets and landing on the stairs and it was like, Oh yeah, destroyed that wheel again. All right, next. So I did, I was just playing in, in that realm of like before free ride was free ride and, and just playing on my bike, you know, it's what you do. That's awesome. And did you have people out there with cameras and stuff filming this or is, were you just the, I would take photos of my buddy that I rode with all the time and he would take pictures of me and we would, you know, buy the little disposable little Kodak cameras. Yeah. And then, you know, you take it down and have it developed. And and so I've got, you know, a few shoe boxes full of old photos like that. Yeah. That's that's, that's, that's really awesome. about all we were doing at that time. Uh my friends started getting into Deer Valley opened up for lifts or mountain biking, it was kind of one of the first places in the US to wasn't the first, but it was pretty pretty early on. They had lifts or mountain biking. And my friends started buying full suspension bikes. And, and so I wanted to ride up there, find out, I had to find out that, oh, you need a helmet. <laughs> like all this riding prior to that, no helmet, no, helmet. no need. Like I'm a seventies child, you know, yes. you, you didn't have a helmet back then. So they required a helmet and I went down to the local specialized shop and got myself a sub six road bike helmet and basically had no plastic shield on it. It was just, it was foam, gray foam. That's all it was. <laughs> Perfect. And it was like, okay, the lightest minimalist helmet I could possibly buy. And so that I could just get on that lift. And so, yeah, I just started riding the lift all the time and then ended up buying a, a GT LTS. That was a really fun bike, but extra fragile I broke that thing three, three times. You, you got, you ordered the extra fragile one. Well, it, it was what I could afford at the time. And, you know, like downhill bikes were really a, a novelty and 
they're really rare. There was very few things that you could really buy at that point in time that were good, you know? So that's what I bought, worked my way through it and eventually uh, moved up to a Carpiel Disco. If you remember that bike, the eight inch travel bike, it was pretty light, pedaled fairly well, had horrible like pedal lift. Like it wasn't squishy and squatty. It lifted to just like lift you up when you'd pedal and then you'd stop pedaling and then it would relax down and travel. It was really quite awful as far as pedaling characteristics went, but it was way better than the LTS as far as being able to push my limits. So at that point I started jumping off roofs and doing bigger stuff. There was a free ride competition. It was a, a video comp that uh, Raceface put on. It was the, I think it was the ultimate free ride challenge or something like that. And you'd put together a little video and submit it and made it into the sweet 16 with that video. Sean Spomer shot it. If you know him. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was kind of the first time I really was filmed doing anything. And that little video kind of sparked my interest in filming because I, I really just enjoyed the monkey do it again. The sending that, like, go, up, go up there and hit that thing again and hit it again. And it was like, you know, a lot of times I would be like, I got to go hit that again. That was not good. I need the good shot. So I had a ton of fun doing that kind of stuff, jumping cars and jumping off roofs and sliding down rocky, stupid, gravelly things. And yeah, just early days of free riding when free riding wasn't a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Let's fast forward then. Rampage. Yep. And that really wasn't too far of a fast forward. At the time, I, I was friends with Chris Bauman, Crispy. Um, he shot with Thor Wixom on the down video, he contacted me and said, Hey, we're going to shoot for the double down video. And do you want to come down? Like we're going to go down to Virgin Utah and, you know, ride some of these hillsides that Bender says are rideable. So we went down and met up with Bender and he was doing his normal pre huck rituals. And he had a video on, gosh, who was it? It was, um, uh, crusty demons Two, And I don't know if you've ever seen that video. I don't but think I have seen crusty demons Two. It's absolutely terrifying. The things that they're doing in those videos and people just getting crushed. Like you think Bender was a maniac. Seth was just as big of a maniac, if not more. I was, you know, just terrified for my life sitting at Bender's house before even filming. And then off we go up to the Hills to go ride these rampage lines and uh, we went out and we filmed all day and we had a great time. And during that same time period, Bender was talking with um, Todd Barber, the kind of the inventor of the Rampage event and trying to talk him into doing this event down there. Let's see if people can ride down this stuff, kind of like a, a, a free skiing competition type of thing. Todd was a little apprehensive, I think, about doing it because it's a little little death defying. And so he, he searched the world for 30 riders that he felt could actually ride down those mountainsides and because I had been there and filmed with Thor. They gave me a shout and said, Hey, do you want to come down and try this, you know, competition? It's going to be probably more like a bro down kind of thing, but it's a comp, you know, so come on down and see if, see what we can ride. And it really was a bro down that first year. It was super fun. Everybody was just so supportive and stoked just to watch their bros ride down this stuff, you know? Uh, so that's, that was my end. Talk a little bit. I mean, your first time in Virgin Utah, looking at some of this terrain, were you like, what, what are we doing here? Like, what are we talking about? Or were you actually like, this looks rad. You know what I mean? Like at, I was super what, into it. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I, I was, I was super into it because I had been jumping off roofs. Yeah, if it, if it was like, yeah, I feel like jumping off roofs had you know set me up in life so that when I first took a look at what they were talking about riding in Virgin Utah, it was more like sick as opposed to like, what are you even talking about right now? So it sounds like this was viewed as just a nice continuation of the progression. Yeah, it was for me, it was, you know, you know, a roof is 10 foot tall and 
you know, I hadn't jumped off a two story building before, but all of a sudden you're out in the virgin desert and there's cliffs that are 10 to 20 to 30 feet tall that are all like reasonable. Like that looks doable shooting pool. If you hit the ball, right, you bounce the right way. It goes in, you know, and it's that same way out there. If you land correctly and you bounce the right way, you can probably pull it off. And so we were doing that and Bender was on, on the next level. He was jumping off like 30, 40 foot cliffs at that moment in time, which was just the most ridiculous stuff on that equipment of the time. Right. Right. So it was pretty impressive to watch him do some really big stuff. And so when we went down for rampage, I had had one experience down there. And so I kind of at least had a, you know, my toe had been in the water and I understood what I was in for. So it was, it was a lot of fun. When's the last time you were at Rampage in person? I've been to every Rampage except for one. When you go now, what are your thoughts about from kind of the early days to looking at what it is now? It's completely different because the first four years that I competed in 2001 to 2004, and that was all on BLM land. It's the the old man site. Because it was BLM land, they weren't allowed to bring in ramps and dig and do crazy stuff. Like you could kind of kick in a line, but it was, it's open use land. It's not go out there with a bulldozer and build stuff. Right. So they had some limitations that they were under. And so that's why it was so raw and free riding, you know, then they took a hiatus for a few years. And when they came back, it's because they had found a new site that's basically across the Valley and it's all on private land. And so every rampage since then has been on private land and they've been able to go in and just build like the basic staple lines. You know, you have a good way down and, and then you can build off all your little side, sidelines. Everybody gets their own opportunities, show their own style and creativity. So it's a lot different now. There was a little bit of trick, tricky jumps going on back then, backflips and things like that, Superman's, but the level of tricks now are just so far beyond what we were doing back then. And I mean, both the way you're talking about the, the original version of Rampage and what it is today, right? Both are very impressive in their own way, right? You're talking about, like you said, a much more raw Mm -hmm. mountain to try to stay on top of a bicycle on your way down. And now they can, I think, dial lines in a lot more and do wild, insane things in the air. I don't know. Do you find you have a preference? If you got to pick and you say, all right, we're going to go back to the, say, old site or a different spot, and it's going to go to a more raw version, would Mm -hmm. you prefer that? Or do you like the current iteration of Rampage that exists today? I like to watch what they're currently doing. (laughs) If I'm going to ride down the mountain, I definitely like like the nostalgia of just the raw mountain. Like you're not going to have a raw mountain forever. Once people figure out that there's a line, all of a sudden it becomes a trail and speed in and it's not raw and it's not fluffy and it's a different feel. So when I was competing, like a lot of my lines, you'll notice you'll see my landings. There's not a footprint on it. Like I, I wouldn't even clean it. Like I would just figure out where the line was and, and try not to touch it until the event so that it looked ultra raw. Like, like you slash the powder bowl and you don't want any other tracks on the bowl. Right. That's, that's the kind of feel that I liked about it. I like that. Yeah. Where do we go next in the story? What, what year do we move to? If we move past rampage how are you feeling about Canfield at the time? Do you like how things are going? Are you seeing like, you know, each year we're getting a little bit better at this building bike things and, you know, we're, we're growing in terms of sales or did it seem like a lot more of a peaks and valleys type of thing? Trajectory, I should say. You know, there's a little bit of ups and downs because of economy and you know, just world events and things that would cause the industry to kind of have its little cycles. And, you know, we, we rolled along with that cycle, but being such a small company, we didn't really have to have huge amounts of sales to be able to continue to grow. And so we, we grew every year, basically 
through at least the first 10 years, we pretty close to doubled our size every single year. So we never, I mean, we're still not a very big company, but we were, we were making what we needed to, to be able to carry on. And so 2004 is when we started working with some factories in Taiwan. So we were really on a good trajectory at that point with, we had plentiful bikes, we were able to start selling and I could focus on design work. And so it was kind of the, a really sweet time in, in our company as we, as we were, you know, growing from a hand built, you know, onesie, twosie bikes to all of a sudden we've got, we've got 200 bikes in mom's basement. Her basement was stacked and we were selling bikes one or two a day. And it was enough. 200 was, bikes in a basement. That's yeah. a, that's a big basement. Yeah, she had a decent sized house and the basement was kind of like a, a mother-in-law apartment, uh-huh. but my brother lived in the bedroom down there and the whole entire rest of the basement was just stacked with bikes. Pretty good. Thanks, mom. She gave us the space. She gave us our first loan to build those first 20 bikes. Hmm. And it actually took us like five years to pay that loan off just because it was like, it was a hard go those first five years. And then once we had production coming in and we had plentiful bikes, then it was, then it started going a lot better. Talk a bit about the move to Fruta. How has that been going? Has that made things from an operations point of view any better or simpler or something? Or just tell us about that move. It's, it's been great. Like I, I used to live in Fruta 2001 to 2006 or so. Like I, I really love the area. The riding here is fun. It's like a good biking community and great access to, you know, Moab one direction into the high Colorado mountains, the other direction. It's all real close and I love it here. So we were looking at Moab as one of the places to be able to move to move the company to. And Moab just in recent years, just, it didn't make sense anymore. It, It wasn't what it used to be. It was just so busy and, you know, real estate pricing went crazy there. And like we could get a lot more here in Fruta. We could still be close, but the shipping, the logistics of it all was much better. The The talent pool here was really good. You know, it was really easy for us to find like-minded people like Nick Simsick. He's a Rampage competitor as well. It works for me. Um, so it was, it was a kind of a no brainer for me to, to move back here. Yeah, it was it was a really easy decision to make, but it's been great. Um, we have a new facility. We we moved here officially on January first. We bought this property uh, at the end of March, and so since then we've been just keeping our heads low and working on the remodel and working on the business and just streamlining all of our processes. That's been a really big push this year. Is you know our CRM and and making sure that we we have all of our bases covered so you know on the production side as far as uh, customers and trying to really take a new level of professionalism to the business instead of being more of a garage builder like we were i want to start talking a bit about the current canfield lineup and the the new bikes you've got but just before we do that i always think it's interesting to ask the heads of companies to talk about your customers what type of person is buying a canfield these days there's a ton of different options on the market right so who is it that's coming to you guys and you're like this is the this is the company for me or this is the specific model for me well, first of all, we have the best customers in the world. Like Boom. I, I love our customers. They're so passionate and they, they're like-minded to the type of writing that I like to do. And everybody in our company likes to do They're aggressive writers. They're people that are critical about their equipment. They feel what's going on under the, underneath them. So they're not willing to put up with a little nuance. that's annoying. You know, they're going to get rid of that bike and they're going to move on to the next bike. And they've tried a lot of bikes. Usually very few first time customers come to us. Like they've already experienced all these other bikes. They'll get on our bike. They'll try it because their buddy had it, whatever, take it out for a ride. And they usually just 
by sight unseen straight off the website without even, you know, touching one other than, you know, take the test ride if they can. But the reputation that we have for our suspension kinematics and our, uh, our sizing and geo and the way that our bikes are, are made to ride. They're very efficient because like, I'm, I'm not the best pedaler in the world. I don't love to pedal. I like the downhill. I want my bike to handle really, really well, but I don't want to suffer on the climbs either. And so our CBF suspension is just ultra efficient. And at the same time, it's because the chain system is rotating around the same place as our suspension system. They're not fighting each other. So you don't get a bunch of pedal kickback and every pedal stroke really feels very efficient. feels like it's just pushing you forward, no matter what your bike weighs, you know, and you know, we'd like to build durable bikes. A lot of our customers are really, really hard on their equipment. <laughs> and so we, we get all those guys like I break everything that I ride, uh-huh. dude, you have anything for me? It's like, I think we can help you out. We like to build our bikes tough. You know, I don't like to maintain my bike either. You know, who does I'll lube my chain and adjust my derailleur, but that's an annoyance to me, like having to even do that. Like, I just want to be able to pull it out of the garage, go ride the thing, throw it back in the garage and not have to think about it. You know, a loose linkage, you know, some weird feel that I don't like, you know, and a lot of our customers, they'll, they'll ride it for a while. They're curious, right? They want to try something else. They'll sell it, buy a different bike, and they come right back. Or, or they quit riding bikes altogether if they're not that passionate about it. <laughs> but yeah, our, our customers come back. They they love the way that the bikes feel, and it's it's just intuitive. You don't you know the best bike parts are the ones that you don't think about. You go out and it's transparent. Like you ride your bike, your brakes feel perfect. Your tires feel grippy. You're not hitting your rims, like all those things that just make your bike ride transparent. That gives you that, that ultimate feel of joy as you're riding down the trail. And that's, that's what we, we aim for is that fun, playful, you know, just, I want to go out and jump my bike. I want to go slap a berm. I want to charge that downhill and all of our customers for the most part, are those types of people. Let's talk about the current lineup. I'm going to let you pick. What do you want to start with? This last spring, we released the Nimble 9 29er Hardtail, aggressive 29er Geo. That's been a fantastic seller for us. Uh, the second bike that we released was the Balance, which is 27.5, 169 mils of travel, pretty aggressive trail bike, enduro race bike, definitely made to be playful. We released after that the 1.2. So kind of building off the heritage of the, the one bike, which was, it's an eight inch travel downhill bike, you know, but it has this new 1.2 has the CBF suspension. So it is ultra efficient, even though it's so long of travel. And so this year, less bike park, less downhilling is happening. So people are buying these things up. They're putting, you know, 180, 190 single crowns on the front and short stroking the rear to 190. So my bike right now is a 190 Zeb on the front and 190 air shock on the rear and mega range cassette, a dropper post, you know, 77 degree seat angle. And like, it is a great all arounder, super fun, even though it's a massive bike, right? Kind of the, the super enduro so those are the bikes that we came out with in, in this last season. And it was mostly based on our ability to get those bikes to production and get them into the market. So over that whole season, I've been working on two new bikes and it's to fill up that gap in the, the middle. Everybody needs their 29ers. So moving on to this next season, we've got the Tilt and the Lithium. They're both 29ers. They're both built around CBF and the same type of platform. The tilt is a kind of the shorter travel. So short, short stroke, it's 125 up to 138. 138 is going to be the default on that one. And that replaces the, the riot and the tour from a few years back. So that was kind of to fill in that bike. And then we wanted a long travel one as well. And so the lithium is 163 mils of travel with a 170 front fork. And you can short stroke that down to 151. 
And it's a slightly slacker head angle on that 64 and a half where the tilt is a 65 and it's a 430 chain stay on the lithium where the tilt is a 425, just slightly shorter, a little less travel. So we were able to tuck it in just a touch more, a little bit more playful. So those are the two bikes that we're coming out with. They start at 1600 bucks for a frame only and 4,300 bucks for the tilt full build. Lithium is $1,750 for frame only and $4,900 for a complete build with Olin suspension. Good prices. Yeah, we're trying to be competitive as possible. By the way, I couldn't tell. You said everybody needs their aggressive 29er. Yes. And I couldn't tell if you said that like kind of sarcastically. Are you a 27.5 guy? I've been riding 29ers since early, early on. Okay. Um, so this was not sarcasm. Um, this is this is no, a we're on the same page. I don't think that 275 is dead. There's definitely a place for it. You know, I think shorter riders benefit from it. People that are riding more jumps and bike park type stuff, 20 275 wheels just turn sharper. Yeah. They just do. Yeah. And you can get the geo like a little bit shorter chainstay, even though it's not the popular thing to do these days. I like the shorter chainstay because it's so snappy in the corners and it's just a lot of fun to ride like goes through the jump transitions better than a long chain stay but 29ers are they're obviously the the hot bike in the industry right now and we had a big hole in the middle of our line we just didn't have a bike that was that was ready for the market yet and so these bikes we've been working on for close to four years now wow so they, they've had tons of testing and, and yeah, they're dialed. They're awesome. I can't wait for everybody to get on. So this is maybe a tougher question. When we start going through a company's lineups, I always kind of move to sort of a brewery analogy, right? And so you've got a number of breweries making their own Pilsner and their own lager and their own stout, right? And I always enjoy asking like, okay, so with the tilt and lithium, if you're thinking about some of the other bikes in their category, how would you talk about, because you've already said like we needed it in our own lineup, right? You guys needed to make your own Pilsner or Stout as it were, but like talk a little bit if you have thoughts on this is where we think the Tilt or the Lithium might stand out a bit in their respective categories. Well, the CBF suspension is an obvious place to start with that because we use it, we developed it, but uh, Revel licenses it. Yeah. And you know, they're, they're making some fantastic bikes. Their geo is a little bit different than ours and their carbon were aluminum. And so there's some differentiation there that it, it all works as a good symbiosis. Talk about the geo differences. We're a little bit slacker and a little bit shorter chain stays progressiveness is pretty darn close. You know, the pedaling efficiency is pretty darn close. There's always little nuances, but we're both in a very, like a very tight range on our pedaling efficiency and our braking is somewhat similar. Just, you know, you, you want a little bit of squat, not, not much, but you certainly don't want the stink bug effect. (laughs) You are, you are correct. But, but you want a little bit of, of settling of the suspension during braking and CBF, if tuned correctly, can do that. And that's really what our focus with that technology over the years has been is like balancing your pedaling efficiency and your braking. Like those two things are really important to be able to maintain traction and maintain the you know, a smooth progression rate. Like we've never been not never, but most of our bikes have not been overly progressive. You know, I'm a big fan of linear personally, at least for downhill bikes, because you, you, you use a lot more travel more of the time. And so it feels really deep and smooth. It feels like you have more travel than you really do. Our current bikes are kind of a sweet spot between all that where they're, they're progressive enough to not bottom out harshly, but they're not so progressive that you sag, you know, sag too much. Your bottom bracket ends up too low. You smack pedals all the time. 
you're using like this middle part of your travel, but you never really get to the bottom either. It just ramps up so hard that you never get the bottom. So I, you know, our bikes, you're going to feel that bottom out bump every once in a while. And in downhill racing, like you want to feel that, like if you're not feeling a bottom out, like once a run, when you make a mistake, then you're probably too stiff and you're not taking full advantage of all you've got. So our progression rates are definitely dialed towards being able to get full travel, all usable travel, not letting it sag too much, you know, like nobody likes their bike to sit really low in the travel, like unless your BB is too high. <laughs> Would you say then as a generalization, you think there's a, a lot of mountain bikers out there who are running their bikes too stiff? Like, do you, do you, do you see that generalization? If you said, you know, if it went, are people running too stiff, too stiff or too soft? Uh, too stiff for the most part, like 25% sag is to me is too stiff. Like, I don't like that feel. I, I want at least 30. Sometimes I go 33 more in like, I'm a downhill rider. Like I want to have that same amount of sag that I would get out of a downhill bike on all of my bikes. And I want it to be a smooth progression rate. You know, I don't want spikes toward the bottom out. I want it to just be smooth and predictable. Like you get on the bike, you immediately feel at home and comfortable on it. And it doesn't require a special shock, you know, because we're in kind of that sweet spot. We get this question a lot is like, you're specking an air shock on it, but can I run a coil? And it's like, yes, you can, because we're right in the middle of that sweet spot and we're not varying off to either extreme. And so, you know, if, if you want to run less sag, you can, you know, you can turn your compression settings down and run a little less sag. If you feel like it, you can turn your compression up a couple clicks, you know, run a little bit more sag and it, it allows the rider to fine tune their bike very easily without having to buy some, you know, super special, like custom tuned, anything, just, just put it on your bike, a couple clicks and you're going to be right there. But you personally are a fan of the predictable squish. Yes. I, I don't like overly progressive suspension. It hurts my ankles when I bought them out. <laughs> you know, I don't like overly stiff suspension and not enough sag, you know, because it, feels harsh on the little small bumps and you just, it just wears you out quicker over a ride. I want that smooth, predictable, compliant feel. I very rarely ever turn on like progression switch or lockout switch, anything like that. Like I'll, I never touch it unless I'm, I'm going for two hours up a dirt road and I know I'm all I'm going to do is pedal that whole time and I'll flip the switch. But otherwise if I'm riding trail, if, you know, if it's just a short climb, it, it doesn't really help much because the traction is so good with CBF when it's wide open and it's so efficient that you're not hindered by not flipping that switch. And then I forget to turn the switch off, of course, and you start charging down the mountain and it's like, man, I'm really off my game today. I can't ride worth anything. It's like, oh, that stupid switch is on. Yeah. So yeah, that's more annoying to me than anything. Pretty much, I think you and I just maybe aren't smart enough to remember to flip the switch at the top. So that's why we need to run open. Yeah. So that's okay. You're in good company, or at least you're in my company. So you've got that going for you or not? <laughs> A master suspension guy that I really respected. He always said, like, why the hell do these people even have lockouts on their suspension? Why do you even buy suspension huh. if you're going to lock it out? Hmm. So I always thought that was pretty funny and so true. And so true. What else should we say about the current lineup or any of the bikes in that lineup? I'd like to just give you the opportunity, you know, to say like one thing that maybe we don't get asked about a lot or people seem to overlook about one of the bikes or all of the bikes with respect to what else is out there on the market. I just think like if I spent four years putting a bike together, I suspect you might kind of get asked the same questions most of the time. And maybe you're like, how come nobody is asking about this? Or why do they seem to overlook that? 
this is the leading question and I'm trying to give you the floor, if that makes any sense. One of the questions that you see in the forums, it just comes up over and over and over is how does it, how does that pedal? How does that bike pedal? Right. It's it's normal. Like everybody wants to know how does the bike pedal because they're not able to just, you know, go down to the local bike shop, pedal it around the parking lot, yeah. which in my opinion is a terrible way to yeah. test learning character. Learn anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It might feel great in the parking lot. It's going to be terrible on the trail, but you know, that's, that's one of the things that our customers are so great with is most of the time I don't need to go in there and try to tell it, convince people how good our suspension is because our customers go in there and they tell them like, here is my review of this bike this is my favorite bike. Like this thing pedals amazingly. And when you turn it down the hill, it does everything that I ask it to do without any, you know, weirdnesses. That pedaling question just comes up over and over and over. And, you know, hopefully people just continue to research. That's what I usually tell people is just jump on forums and see what people are saying. And, and you're going to get a good feel, feel for why this is the bike for you. It's a, it's a special feel to our bikes. I think, you know, they're very playful. They're incredibly efficient and they're made for the tough guy that wants to actually ride their bike hard and beat on it and have a good time and not think about their, their creaky suspension. I want to shift gears and talk a bit about just the broad mountain bike landscape today. I guess my first question would be, what do you like most about what's happening in the industry? And that could be like right now during this whole COVID thing, or just more broadly within like the last year or two. But what do you like most about what's happening? Well, with the whole COVID thing, there's definitely been an increase in people riding their bikes. I think that's fantastic. You know, parents are buying their kids' bikes. They're, you know, dad's getting mom into it or vice versa. Like there's more families going out and riding. And it's been a huge increase in ridership in the industry. So there's, there, I don't see a negative to that shy of the ability for suppliers to fulfill demand. That's the hardest hurdle uh, in today's, you know, manufacturing world, the super long lead times. But I love to see that there's more and more people on bikes. And even if they're getting in on kind of more entry level bikes, there's, you know, people buying bikes secondhand and it's kind of a trickle down effect where, you know, you're able to sell your older bike a little easier today than it was last year and get a little bit more money for it. Now it holds their value, holds its value a little bit better. And that allows these more passionate riders to buy their dream bike. And it's kind of a big change in the way that people are buying bikes now too, in the, kind of like the snowmobile industry, Polaris, if you want their brand new RMK, you snow check it in the spring and you get delivery in the fall. And so we've been doing pre-orders on pretty much everything that we're launching, like our tilt and our lithium are all pre-order right now. Our nimble nines, we're waiting on, you know, we have some in stock, but we're out of mediums and larges right now. We're just waiting on product to come in and people are pre-ordering their bikes and they've got, you know, more options on ways to pay for it. And like, you know, basically they're just, they're able to pay for it uh, a little now, a little in a month, a little in a month, you know, and it, it doesn't hurt the bank account so much and they can plan for it a little bit better. And they're getting their dream bike now. They're buying more expensive bikes. You know, I, I do like the dropper post world now steeper seat tube angles slacker head angles people are building their bikes tougher like it's really hard to buy a bad bike these days there's very few crummy bikes out there we're dialing in geometry yeah geo is definitely getting better and it just makes the the ride more fun like i i definitely do not want to go back to the days of you know 71 degree head angles and you know, monster long chain stays on 29ers. That's not fun. What would you most like to see changed about the industry? As far as technology of the bikes, 
the one big, big one that I just am annoyed by is the derailleur. I mean, I know chains and derailleurs are an efficient system and it's really hard to match that efficiency, but I'd love to see more gearboxy type things come down, come down the pipeline. It's like something, something's got to happen. They've been trying at it for a lot of years now. There's got to be a good one that's going to come out at some point. So I would love to see that happen. Would that be your prediction for like the next thing we see? I mean, you know, we got rid of the front derailleur for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So now you want to get rid of the damn rear derailleur. And and that is that though then kind of your prediction or I guess hope that say what in the next five years, 10 years, we're going to more gearboxes. Oh, it has to happen in the next 10 years, I would assume. Like five years seems very reasonable. It just seems like it's got to happen at some point. Some of the the big component manufacturers hopefully are going to step up and make something for the masses. I I know it'll all take time to get it all dialed, but, you know, having a rear derailleur, a little piece of jewelry, delicate jewelry hanging off the back of your bike, right in a prime hidden zone. This seems crazy to me. You know, when you put it like that, <laughs> I think you think you're onto something. Yeah. You know, you hear, you hear the bike shop guys like screaming, like derailleur side down, derailleur side down. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, don't lay your bike on the derailleur side. I was like, I've got brake rotors on the other side. Where am I supposed to put my bike? Right. Right. Okay, I like this. Hey, I want to let you get going, but just before I do, you know, this podcast is called Bikes and Big Ideas. And so I like to ask the question, what's your big idea? And the the gearbox doesn't count. I like that answer a lot. I'm not not, not doing that, so that's not my big idea. Yeah, yeah. You don't get to count that one, but like what do you what do you got for us? What do you what do you been what do you what's keeping you up at night? What are you thinking about? What are you working on on a scratch pad or something? I don't know. It's hilarious because I'm I'm an idea guy. I'm constantly coming up with like a new whatever, right? Uh, something that's going to make someone's life a little easier, a little better. And it's a product that I can manufacture and people would buy it. And, you know, it'll make, make the world a better place. Right. And, you know, so in our history, like we've done a lot of innovative products, like 10 years ago, we came out with the nine T hub as a nine tooth hub that basically gave you that increased gear range so you could get rid of the front derailleur, right? And that was prior to front derailleurs going away. So that, you know, like aggressive 29er geometry, short chain stays, so the bike actually handled correctly, little slacker head angle. You know, we were on the forefront with that. Ultra thin pedals. One of the ideas I had about six years ago was, you know, we, we were right in the beginning stages of narrow wide chain rings. Right. And it's a fantastic idea. And obviously it works really well proven after, you know, quite a few years of people riding them and like chain guides are less necessary now, but it's, it's a lot of machining. It's very intricate to make a narrow wide chain ring. And so I filed for a patent on a narrow wide chain So basically taking the wide links and pressing them inward to create a narrow, 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 narrow spacing, like just narrow on the chain alone. Right. And that allows you to get away from having to be a 32 or a 34 or 36, even numbers on your, on your rings. Right. And the rear cassette also, you can't do it because you have odd numbered rear cogs. Right. So the narrow, narrow chain allows you to make simple chain rings, normal cassettes. Like you don't have to buy anything special except for this one chain. And all of a sudden you have that same narrow wide chain retention across the whole entire system, not just the front ring. And so that was a really cool idea. We filed for the patent. And a couple of years later, we found out that specialized had beat us to the punch by about one month on filing for that patent. We still have, haven't seen it. Like we've seen the patent, like the patents out there, you can research that, but uh, we haven't seen it in the marketplace yet. 
hopefully they'll step up their game and get after it moving forward. I'm always idea guy. Like if it's, if it's a good idea, I, I go for a patent, you know, want to at least protect it for a little bit, little bit, you know, try to try to build the product. Your big idea is something you came up with a few years ago. We just have the world hasn't seen it yet. That's what you're submitting. I, I'm submitting that I have more ideas moving uh-huh. forward. And some of these ideas are, they're not related to bikes. You know, I'm big into motorcycles. I love riding bikes hmm. of all sorts. We've been traveling for the last eight years in a motorhome. And so I have ideas related to motorhomes that would be great product. <laughs> I know just silly stuff, right? I'm just a product, a product guy. I like to come up with products that are going to sell well in a marketplace, but you know, help people have a, a simpler, easier, more fun life. Can you share with us the motorhome idea or is this got to be top secret till you, you know, come out with this thing? Cause I don't, I want to kind of want to know what you're going to do to revolutionize the motorhome. Okay. More people travel these days in motorhomes than ever. They're living in motorhomes. And in the wintertime, you go to Arizona or somewhere warm, right? But not all people these days are actually going to warm locations in their motorhomes. And like we did last year, we were in the wintertime here in Fruta and it was foot of snow on the ground and it's cold in a motorhome right? So slide outs are cold, like underneath and people do all of these janky things to their motorhome to try to keep the thing warm through the snowy season. Right. Yeah. So basically airbags that are, that fill up that gap between your slide out and the little cover that goes over the top to help insulate, keep the heat from just coming right out of the top. Same with all around the bottom of it, like little airbags that you just you throw underneath there, pump them up, and it just insulate, seals the bottom of your motorhome to the ground and keeps the heat in. So it's it's a simple product. It doesn't cost much to make, and there's a ton of people out there that need it, want it, and they don't have very good options right now. I like it. I think, so I love that we just ended with a idea for the motorhome perfect i know it's completely out of left field no it's great that's, that's what i that's what i wanted left field and you know you think about them long enough and you figure out which ones are reasonable and which ones are not well i do think to to tie this all together and bring us to a close there has definitely been a consistent theme throughout this entire conversation and that is you like simple things you like predictable things that kind of just work. Yeah. As an engineer, it's like the the old saying is keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You start getting too crazy with too many linkages, you know, things get really hard to control, like too many adjustments, like people are bound to adjust it incorrectly. If you give them a lot of adjustments, try to keep it right in the sweet spot of there's, there's always a balance point with almost everything in life. And you just try to hit that middle road sweet spot and make it to where it's not problematic on either end. Well, Lance, this has been fun. I really appreciate the time and, uh, and the conversation. And I, I think that we really have sort of given people a good sense of how you think about design and how you want your bikes to work. Again, simple, predictable two of two of the features among others that we've talked about. Honestly, I'm still really hope that someday you do come out with the mean poodle <laughs> or I feel like at a minimum there should be a mean poodle t-shirt. Like so if 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 you guys want to come out with the Canfield mean poodle, you know, t-shirt like the logo thing, I count me in. I'll I'll, you know, I'm I'm buying one. So just just let we'll me know. Out, we'll have to figure out if there's a product that actually matches that particular name. Well, I know I'm thinking, you know, your D it, unfortunately I'm personally not really in the market for a DH bike. It does seem like the mean poodle should be a DH bike if, and when, I don't know, think, think about this one, but I think the mean poodle needs to exist in the world. Maybe it's the, uh, the pulley wheel trail bike. (laughs) Okay. Well, see, I left you with something to think about. You know, so uh, I feel like, you know, maybe my work here is done, but, uh, you've thought about that one for years and years, but not until recently have people been 
much more receptive to the pulley wheel idea. Yeah. Like been doing it since, I don't know, early two thousands, like pulley wheels have been in our blood forever. And yeah, it, it makes sense to kind of capitalize on that, but it's never been a mainstream thing. Yeah. And do I spend my time and effort on that uh-huh. or do I spend my time and effort on something that's going to make a, a much bigger splash? Yeah. So it's always trying to find that balance point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, I'll let you go to maybe go figure that out. You know, do you go for the big splash or, or the, uh, the more niche idea? So you got something to do today. I've got a whole winter worth of design ahead of me, so I'll, I'll get on it. Awesome. Hey, appreciate the time. Good to talk to you, Lance. Hope to do it again soon. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Lance for the conversation. Thanks to Survivor for presenting this episode. And be sure to check out the links to the Survivor Endurance case in the show notes to this episode, which you can find on your phone or over on our website. Thanks also to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, from all of us here in Crested Butte and Gunnison, please be safe, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.